0: guest on today's podcast is a long-time friend of mine, John Nicolosi, starting together when we were in high school at Caulfield Grammar all those years ago in the athletics team, grown up together, trained together. John was a highly talented athlete as a junior competing at national level. One thing that definitely stood out for me in the early years was how hard John trained, all the effort he put into his training to get the best out of himself for competition, not just athletics, but football. I really only saw it from an athletics perspective. Him being a few years younger than me as well, really stood out. Uh, The the amount of effort that someone would put in at a young age, at 12, 13, 14, at the time, uh, was incredible. That obviously translates to later on in life, in business, he's grown his own business, Melbourne Athletic Development, which is a physio consulting in Collingwood in Melbourne. John also has his track and field squad, the mad track squad. He learns from the best both around Australia and the rest of the world, taking in as much as he can. Uh, Trying to make the best out of his athletes and also increase the knowledge and experience of coaches around Australia. It's a topic we we spoke about on the podcast. If you're interested in the technical aspects of running, sprinting in in any sport, not just athletics, jump onto John's Instagram page. You'll find these neat little videos on the technicalities of sprinting, going through all aspects of biomechanics, ranging from looking good biomechanically to actually running fast. If you're interested in running fast not just in athletics make sure you have a watch of those videos they're fantastic athletics coaching isn't a paid profession as such even even at a higher level it's very hard to get money for athletes on their own let alone a coach trying to support those athletes Uh, do they have the support structure around that squad the head coaches generally do all the work for them and then stems control from that coach and we spoke about that at length in particular about the junior athletes and how some coaches control athletes uh, to a point where they want all the rewards for themselves and how challenging that is for kids, parents going through the system, not, not really knowing who to trust, which is a challenge in itself. If you're an athletics fan, a track and field fan, diehard or or couch follower, this would be a really interesting conversation to listen to about the real inner workings and challenges of a quote-unquote dying sport. What does the future of athletics look like? It's a major discussion we had on the podcast today. We hope you enjoy it. We definitely could have talked a lot longer, but it's a decent podcast today, about two hours long, so sit down and strap yourselves in for two hours of athletics if that's your thing. If it's not, you'll learn a thing or two about the challenges of the sport. Get ready for a deep dive into athletics with John Nicolosi. Many, many funny stories you'll have to ask us (laughs) offline later. But if you compare those times, and we were talking about it before, comparing those times of Neville coaching, Mm. the athletes back in the, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and you keep going forwards to today's coaches like yourself who go further into detail of mechanics and further detail on how to run, going from being basics to... Simple things of high knees, long arms, relaxing to go into finer detail about horizontal application. What about it? Why, <laughs> why, why, why would you go into that sort of detail for a, I suppose, an under fourteen kid to little athletics through to the seniors? When, when does that start kicking in?
1: Look, I think my even my understanding of it has changed. I think when you're early on in your coaching development and now I think people are a lot more educated in coaching sports science, you know the pedagogy of teaching just different ideas start to sort of come across and one of the things that I think does seem to affect that is early on there's a real habit and I know that I had this habit a lot and I know it's something I've had to learn is like you you overcoach um, and I think it's one of the things that like, even you and I, when we were being coached by people like Neville, we actually sometimes would be critical of the fact that he was giving us less feedback rather than more feedback. Um, and spending time, you know, like I was grateful enough to, to be able to take the time and go over and spend some time in the US um, and speak with some of the, you know, the preeminent coaches, people like Dan Pfaff for an extended period of time. Um, you know, I was over there for a few weeks at a time and – one of the things that he said on one of the first days that I went there in 2014 was I whenever I get a new athlete especially if they're an adult you know I start giving them feedback and then gradually give them less and less and less and less and at the start when I was I was still quite early in coaching adults at that point I was like what the hell does he even mean by that but essentially what he was talking about was the fact that like he wanted to build autonomy into that athlete's understanding and I think that Mm -hmm. Someone like Neville, for instance, and in the previous generations, they naturally did that. They didn't baby athletes. What they did really well, and this has taken me a long time to realize, because I think, you know, I was petulantly very critical of, you know, Neville's understanding of, say, scientific application, was that the way that they designed their training actually started to gain the outcomes that they wanted without necessarily cueing or coaching it. And I think this is the big thing that's slowly changing even in my coaching is um, if you start thinking about, say, like skill acquisition, so learning new skills, drills, running techniques, whatever it is in whatever sport, there's a couple of ways of doing that. You can obviously coach it. You can actually say to someone or I want you to move here. I want you to do that. Um, And there's a lot of discussion actually done there's a guy named nick winkelman for anyone who's interested he's done a fair bit of work around the language of coaching um both with internal cues like where you actually say i want you to move your arm here or i want you to move this segment of the body or i want you to do this versus mm-hmm. external cues uh things like saying push the ground away from you or run away from you know the starting blocks or whatever it is and what, I think the next step beyond that is actually creating an external environment. And one of the ideas that often gets used in skill development is the idea of constraints. So you put essentially, and it doesn't, I don't mean physical obstacles, but it may be physical obstacles in the athlete's way, whether that's something that like a hill, for instance, where it actually is a, you know, gravity is your obstacle and, and, and your limitation or your constraint. And that actually teaches you to be able to overcome that. And then the aim for you is obviously when you transition them back to flat surface, they know how to push more. And I think early on what I was really poor at understanding was that a lot of the previous coaches intuitively picked up that if they created those kind of environments Um, both psychologically and also physically, they could actually teach a lot of uh, those mechanical things without verbally actually explaining, oh, I want you to do this or I want you to do that or I need you to understand that it's about creating more force application. They just put you on a hill or they gave you a sled or they just said, do that and run faster. Now, obviously, there's some real basic level understanding that's probably needed. But one of the things that I've now come to understand is, like, that's actually really intelligent coaching, whether it was by design or they happened upon it and realized, okay, empirically, like, I'm getting good results from this, so I'm going to keep using this methodology, um, I think is probably what happened more than anything. Um, But essentially, like, when you're dealing with kids and even now with my adults that I coach, I think it's the exact same conversation where the puzzles that I put in front of a child and the puzzles that I've put in front of an adult – not that different the explanation that i might give about why we're doing that task if they want to know more about it probably does go to a much deeper level um and again like a, this is where you know my coaching understanding and, and i know i'm probably going to quote dan have a lot um and it's not to say that i agree with everything that he says but it, he definitely has been an influence on me um in ideas like he, he speaks about the idea about when you're teaching, you know, are you teaching at primary school level, secondary school level, tertiary level, PhD level? And I think that's that's really essentially the difference. So if you've got a kid who is 12 and has never done anything, maybe you design the task, you say, okay, I don't really think that they're applying much horizontal force in their, in their acceleration. I'm going to make them run up a hill or I'm going to give them a very light sled to pull or a prowler to push or I'm going to, you know, create some sort of resistance with a band or I'm going to make them wear a weight vest- or whatever it is that you're trying to get out of them understanding how to apply more forces in whatever direction you're trying to do it with. The way that you explain that to them can be very, very watered down and it can be, as I said, primary school level. It's, oh, <coughs> if you pull on the sled, it's going to make you be able to learn to push better, right? Whereas when you then do the review with someone who you've been coaching who's 25, 26, 27, 28 years old, the conversation can be, oh, okay, like you can see here that you're not creating enough horizontal projection and it's meaning you're having to actually put your foot down early and therefore, like, I need you to be able to keep this angle and I need you to play with that. They're different conversations, but essentially it's the exact same thing that you're trying to get across. And I think one of the things that has slowly become you know, obvious to me is, um, and probably slower than it should have, but – what happens is that the difficulty not only of the explanation, but also the sort of depth in which you need to go with the task is usually commensurate with the level of that athlete. Like they're not, if you're a child and you've got basically nothing developed in your repertoire of skills or physical capabilities, you don't need to be going to PhD level in terms of the way that you're stressing that athlete. Um, And we can talk about it now if you want, and it's some stuff that I'm working on. But, like, my colleague and I, um, who works with me at at Melbourne Athletic Development, Jack Williams, are doing a fair bit of work at the moment, some writing. We're looking at actually publishing some work and and potentially a book even. But one of the things we've been talking about a lot is complex adaptive systems. And, you know, as a human, you know, because we have so many inputs and so many modulators and so many systems active, even in a skill-developing kind of realm, One of the things we've been talking about is the idea of like if that that system is mature i you know in the sporting sense it's got a a training history or it doesn't the way in which you actually unvelop those kind of stresses to that system or that person or that athlete is probably again going to be commensurate with the level of maturity and that makes sense even just on a basic level like it passes the common sense test like you're not going to take them from zero to 100 straight away But there's actually probably some pretty good biological, you know, physiological evidence suggesting that if you don't have a lot of those factors, the type of periodization that you choose actually should probably be more sequenced than doing, you know, what would be considered maybe more of a complex type of periodization where you throw everything at the athlete at once and see what sticks. And, you know, in in, in a more advanced athlete, someone who's 25 plus and has been training for 10, 12 years, you can't afford to take out certain aspects of their training. They always need to be sort of semi-maintained. Whereas in a child, you can go, oh, we're going to do a block of you know, speed work or we're going to do a block of endurance work or whatever it is. And their actual gradient towards them falling back to their baseline is a lot smaller and a lot easier and a lot shorter than someone who yeah, is sort of further, much further down the track. Um, You know, we've been talking about this concept, which is probably going to be confusing for people, but it's like reducibility gradient. And it's sort of like, how hard is it for you to return back to your previous level and how quickly do those things return? Um, You know, so one of those discussions that you often have, even with someone in the general populace, they go, oh, I've been training for six months. If I take a month off, what's going to happen? You know, and certain factors won't diminish at all. Like we know that if you're actually reasonably well strength trained and and you've actually got a history of strength training for multiple years, you're not going to lose your strength in four weeks. You probably couldn't, you couldn't do anything almost to lose strength in four weeks. Um, You know, you could probably do one or two sessions and be back close to your PB. But if you actually haven't done any strength training at all, and then you do three months and then you stop for a month, you're probably going to be back to square one. So that reducibility is very different and that reversibility Um, Is a concept that happens in um, sports performance, gets spoken about. We've chosen a kind of slightly different term because we're actually talking about it more in healthcare. But um, the idea of reversibility is something that I think even coaches tend to think about quite a lot and say, like, off seasons. It's like, especially with kids, you know, they go and play another sport or whatever and they come back and you're like, oh, okay, are we back at square one? Are we starting from the same level? Like, and each kid's different as well. I know I've probably gone off on about seven different tangents there, but I hope that kind of answers maybe why um, or, you know, what level you might pitch something at if if you're coaching, you know, say mechanical uh, items for sprinting. What's the youngest level athlete you currently coach? Right now, 18. we have got a guy who's 18 turning 19. Um, Over the last couple of years I have done a bit of work with some of the schools um, in the APS system um and i'm at the moment i think i will be coaching again in that system um so it probably will go down to um obviously what are they? year seven so you know 13 years of age um and like i do do a little bit of work kind of what i would call not necessarily coaching but kind of assisting you know consulting with um coaches and athletes of, of younger athletes um i just tend to find that um, maybe with my timetable, I don't, I don't necessarily get the time to, to coach younger athletes as well because, um, you know, there's not enough time in the day to be able to do multiple squads for me at the moment. Um, but it's something I am actually really considering in the future. I think um, my philosophy or idea at the moment is that the earlier you probably start some of these concepts, even if they're not, as I said, they're not implemented at a really advanced level, are probably going to make a difference for some of these kids progressing over time.
0: I would have thought so. Looking at the lot of of little athletics coaches in particular, mainly parents who are interested, their kids are very good, Mm -hmm. whether they have the understanding or not, then you go higher levels, call that APS, under 14 level upwards, Mm -hmm. different step again, then obviously you're under 18s and up. Mm -hmm. I suppose it's a bit of a question of for those little athletes, those under sixes who come out, you just want them to have fun predominantly. Yeah. Would you recommend them running up hills, even if it's in the backyard, to uh, fun? More so than yeah, I think actual the, I training?
1: Think, I think the biggest thing, and this is where like uh, my idea around it is it's like it's it's about skill development. And skill development is fun. The thing that I think people don't necessarily understand if you haven't done enough work in the idea like in skill acquisition is that there's a couple of different ways of learning things. One, which is the way that I think is the worst way of doing it and is why kids hate it, is through repetition, Right. And I think that that's what destroys children's in interest in any sport, but athletics is one of them. Um, and I think that the way that we find, um, or at least there's a number of sort of skill development ideas that come from, from that skill acquisition sort of and, and motor learning kind of area of research is that exposure to variability and, as you said, different surfaces, different activities, you know, different things actually is a really, really neuroplastic kind of um, stimulus you know it actually creates changes within your brain that tell your brain how to actually create new movements or new skills. And there's actually really strong evidence that happens actually in an overall overarching kind of effect. And what I mean by that is there's really strong evidence and there' was a study done by the German Olympic Committee that actually showed that the best German Olympians, the ones who won medals versus the ones who just went, as part of the Olympic team, tended to play multiple sports until much later. They were all playing, all the Olympic medalists on the German team, pretty much the majority of them was like 80-something percent were still playing more than one sport at the age of 16 versus the ones that specialized early. And the idea is that your conceptual understanding and your skill development is much broader and much better if you get exposed to more. So I think the idea of like making it fun is an inherent part of actually exposing them to different environments and different skills and different exercises and different ways of presenting problems to children. Children actually love problems as long as you find a way that they engage with. And I think that's the big disconnect that we see probably with some of the coaching um, that happens is as coaches, it's not necessarily always considered a creative pursuit, but it probably does need to be reasonably creative. Um, in the sense of when you design things for, for someone who's younger, the inherent motivations are different. As you said, they're there because they enjoy it. They're there because they're socializing. Maybe you know they, they're good at it or they're developing skills or whatever their motivation might be. I think our job as coaches of younger people is to keep presenting fun problems for them to solve in ways that they actually see them as not only a challenge, but in ways that they see that they're learning and they feel like they're getting something out of that interaction. So my view is that it's not that you're not trying to develop certain things you are and you might be developing them really really well and it might annoy some you know rival parents or coaches or whatever if your child is progressing more than than their athlete but it's more not necessarily about like i'm not drumming this into the kid i'm not making them do a thousand repetitions of something it's not they're not training six days a week what i'm doing is i'm presenting problems for them to solve and if they can do that and enjoy that process then I don't think that there's any sort of limitations on how far you can take some of those things. Like obviously there's certain things, like as I said, you're not going to expose an athlete who's seven years of age to really, really advanced training when they're say skeletally immature, right? Because it probably poses inherent risk to multiple systems, you know, metabolic systems, you know, and we see some of these weird things happen in gymnastics where they push really hard and, you get even say some of the female athletes, their, their menstrual cycles are actually adjusted because of, and their their actual um, development is adjusted because they have been training at it at such an advanced level. I think clearly that's probably going too far, but unfortunately, that's the world of gymnastics um, and where it sits because of you know a number of particularly anthropometric reasons. You want to try and maximise performance um, by the age of about sixteen to eighteen. Um, which we don't have that problem in athletics, which is something that needs to be educated, I think, more. that It's a long process um, with athletic pursuits often.
0: So the, if I look back on not only our development in athletics, I mean, we both did football in a winter sport. Uh, with coaching my girls under 10s, or well, assisting coaching, I'm not coaching at the moment, but the girls who were doing netball, who were doing the other sports, are much better Skill development uh, can move their bodies a lot easier than the other girls who don't do a thing at all. Um, and if I go from football to athletics to jiu-jitsu, which is incredibly different, I can't move my body anywhere near as well as the other guys can. Obviously, I'm, I'm white belt and very bottom, uh, but that skill, motor skills, basic movements is nowhere near the same as some other guys would be. Breakdances certainly be a great way to go. Maybe get them okay. into <laughs> athletics. That'd be fantastic. Um, but in terms of a fitness level, on top of that, is there a is there a sport, say through winter, football, soccer, whatever it might be, hockey, that the kids come in into the athletic season because they won't start till August September? Is there a, is there a sport that tend tends to have a better fitness base when they come into athletics than others?
1: Uh, I guess it depends on the specific athlete and you know what sport they do and maybe what of you know what um, position they play in that sport, for instance. Um, the sports that tend to actually um, transfer well are like your field sports um, or even any other sort of more speed power-based sport. Um, but essentially, like, it's more about are there competing interests? Like, one of the big things you see, like, the most aerobic of um, or most aerobically demanding sports, you would say, of field sports is probably AFL football, and that's just because of the size of the field. Um and sometimes there's actually quite competing interests that happen. So, and and some of that's driven by, um, you know, like the desires of that athlete and where they want to go with their long term development. You know, like I always remember, and I'm sure you would remember, and he probably doesn't, probably isn't stoked us talking about it. But like, you know, someone like Stefan Garuba, who was a very very good junior athlete. I think he won an under sixteen national title for the four hundred. Yeah. You know, come year 11, year 12, he was trying to get drafted and he ended up going and playing some seasons in Sydney, I believe. Yeah. Um, he was doing training that really wasn't commensurate with his, his his actual event. You know, his best event was probably 1, 2 and 400. You know, I remember days where he was getting ready to try and run a 3K time trial because that's what the TAC, that was TAC Cup now, now I think it's the NAB League. You know, at that time, that's what they were trying to develop. So – it was this weird conundrum where he had to get ready for the, you know, the draft, um, you know, combine sort of stuff. And he was like trying to get ready to do a three K yet. His best events are much shorter. Um, and the funny thing is he's probably never going to run at one, you know, one all out three K other than in the fitness test. So it's that weird kind of balance. And so I think, Actually, although you can get some really good benefits from playing AFL football in a transfer, it depends on your event. Sometimes I think that there is actually for short sprints, um, depending on the style of coaching that you go through and your football club and what they like doing. If you've know if you got an old school hard-ass um, football coach who makes everyone run laps <laughs> when they do something wrong, um, then it's probably not particularly that beneficial for your development in terms of you know developing the speed and power aspects for, for sprinting. Um, but you tend to find... I think sports, particularly like netball um, and even soccer, because of the more stop-start nature of it, probably actually has a little bit more beneficial sort of transfer, I think. Um, It's minimal at best, though. I think the benefits that uh, athletes and young athletes get from doing multiple sports, both from a physiological perspective and a physical development perspective, but also actually just from the socialisation aspect and enjoying their sport – far outweighs maybe any sort of diminished or that, you know, we said that reversibility or reducibility that you get when they come back. So I think them doing something is better than nothing. Um, if you want to probably get huge transfer, um, it's probably got to be something that's more speed power. Um, if it's, you know, shorter sprints, particularly, I think anything 400 up any of the field sports is probably a really, really good foundation for the season. Um, and then, You know, there's other sports, as you said, like martial arts, I think actually provides a really, really good foundation um, for uh, particularly probably for field events. Um, Simple reason is is that, as you mentioned, there's so much uh, body awareness that you develop from participating in a sport where your whole job is to be aware of what you're doing in space and time and your limbs are doing in space and time and what someone else is doing in space and time it really transfers extremely well to, to field events. Um, so you tend to find that some of the best field event athletes, and, and there already is some of this recruitment that happens, say, with pole vault, particularly from gymnastics, but you see a similar thing, I think. Um, you know Gymnastics is a good one, but martial arts as well is a really good one for those transfer to those ones that really do require that spatial awareness. Um, so those, you know, I think all of those things kind of sometimes combine to give you some of those skill sets. So we're talking about a Stefan Garuba
0: or a Stefan Garuba type where they're getting pushed heavily from the under 14 age to go one direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure if you were the same case, but you were a national champion under 14s under 12 state champion. Uh, no, nah,
1: more yeah, I was never that good. Uh, I'm talking you yeah, come on now. No, no. Never no, like
0: facts get in the way of a good story, my dad's No, too. no, I won
1: a number of state medals. Um one yeah, a couple of state state titles um, at under 13 under 14 under 15 and then a number of medals up until under 18 made a couple of national finals but yeah no 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 medals or anything at nationals um and then uh i think my uh my growing days ended at that point thank my parents for that (laughs) one um and then it meant that i think i uh i kind of stagnated a bit until i kind of worked out a few things but um yeah the well, actually, what? yeah, you, you didn't kind of maybe finish that question. No,
0: I didn't finish. That's all right. So the other Stefan Gruber type, you, for me, I don't think you were pushed heavily towards a sport, even though you were very good in athletics. If we go younger again, I'm, I'm seeing and hearing a lot of, what are they, under 13 girls in particular doing weight sessions at schools, getting pushed by their school teachers, which aren't necessarily their – individual coaches from outside, and you would know if there's a separate coach outside, this is going back 15 years, but I'm not sure if it's the same, there's not much relationships between the yeah, two. S-
1: sadly doesn't seem to be the case. Hasn't changed? Um, it's getting better, I believe. I think now that they're professionalising um, some of these positions, particularly for athletics, for some of like these head coach positions are actually becoming a bit more professionalised, and that's meaning that there's a lot more interaction between those sort of head coach and or maybe the support staff that work in some of the school gyms or, you know, strength and conditioning programs are starting to crop up um, and the outside sort of teams. I know that there's particularly, say, with football, there's a really strong relationship that's existed um, in some of these schools with or is existing with some of these schools and things like, you know, NAB League and um, TAC Cup level type football, um, both in the men's and the women's. I think similar thing is starting to happen with athletics I think the thing that seems to always work the best is when the external school coach is actually or the external coach is actually the school coach as well Um, you know we were in that in in that setting and that seems to work better than people who have external coaches who don't necessarily um, have a relationship or maybe even have any interest in having a relationship which sometimes is probably more of the issue Um, the yeah the whole exposure I think you know, I think this is what you were asking as well. The, I think the exposure for sort of some of those younger athletes to those you know, getting into the gym and doing some of those things, I probably fit into the category of like it really depends, um, which I know is probably not a popular answer. It really depends on what they're doing know if they're doing bodyweight exercises and they're improving their overall coordination and they're improving some really basic fundamental characteristics of movement, you know, stuff that you probably should be doing in PE, but they don't really do anymore. Now they just throw balls at each other. Um, you know, what what I think a lot of physical education teachers call physical literacy, you know, can you do pull-ups, can you do push-ups, can you do a full depth squat? Can you lunge? Can you do really basic things? If that's what they're doing. I like am 1000% supportive of it. I think it's what they should be doing. If they're, and even if, especially even if they're learning say basic technical things, you know, they are a bit more advanced, like they're using a broomstick or a really, really light training bar to learn how to snatch and do cleans and all that kind of stuff. Fantastic. Should they be going anywhere near doing maxes? No, like they're just not anywhere near, as we spoke about the maturity of the system. They're just nowhere near the need for that development of stress. And in, in fact, they actually can't even develop they don't have the capacity to deal with those kind of stresses. So you're going to end up causing all sorts of stupid things. And, you know, uh, we haven't really spoken about it as such, but, you know, in my role as a physio, that's where you're seeing, you know, young female athletes or even young male athletes coming in, they've got stress fractures in their back. And you're like, this is ridiculous. How? How, How are you getting a stress fracture? And you find out that they've been training six days a week. And it's like their system is not ready to deal with that level of stress. Right? And there are the anomalies, and the reason I say that, the anomalies are the people who have been training gradually and building that up from the time they were seven. So you can't do it, but that person's system is very different to their friend who has only just started doing it. Um, and there seems to be, in certain circles of athletics, there seems to be people, I don't know, I think this is probably a worldwide thing, but obviously I'm talking on behalf of Australia, there, there are a lot of people who I think are patting themselves on the back for getting juniors to do very well. Um, I know it's a big issue that happens in little athletics um, and it's a big issue that I think happens at the school level and I think it's a big issue that happens sort of up until maybe world junior levels, under 20s, um, and then everything seems to fall off a cliff. Um, and some of that is sociocultural things. But I think some of it's got to do with what we spoke about at the start of like, have you presented interesting problems to the athlete? And are you building their capacity for learning in a much more broad sense? You know, have you allowed them to play other sports, develop other skills? Have you presented training that's not repetitious bullshit that they are sick to death of doing because they've been doing it since they were 12? Mm. All right. And that's, that's the appropriateness is not necessarily like, I think you have to break the appropriateness into what is – the level of stress that they can actually absorb as like a training stress, you know, and then some of that is, you know, emotionally as well as physically and psychologically and all of those things, you know, and what is their actual capacity to deal with that? Because you can probably expose them to a lot, but they're not not capable of dealing with it, right? And then based on what I was saying earlier about the immaturity stuff, like if you present really advanced stuff, what does that mean for their long-term capability? You know, there's some really, really good researchers in the area of, you know, physical development for, for youth. Um, a couple of guys have done a lot of work, you know, Gregory Myers and, and, and a guy named Avery Fagenbaum who've done heaps of work on it. And essentially what they show is that, like, if you implement the right type of training um, and expose people, even from a young age, you actually expand their ceiling. So if you introduce you know, interesting problems and, you know, learning to kids and skill development at prepubescent, you get a much higher capability than if you introduce it during puberty versus if you introduce after puberty. And I think this is something that I'm even noticing is probably one of the drivers for why, you know, you asked what age I coach. One of the things that I'm sort of looking at of why I think I need to start coaching maybe at a little bit younger is I think sometimes if you don't, Actually, expose people to some of these problems, no matter how simple they are, early enough, you end up in this situation where you've missed development windows and you're not getting them back. You know, like you can push it at certain levels, but it's probably, I think, why we see people go too hard too early on certain things, and then that person's lost that development window, and then they get to 20 and they can't make the next step, right? And there might be some nuances of why they're not making the next step. But I think sometimes it's got to do with what they did in those preceding four, five, six years. Um, you know, and some people come, some people have talent and they can just jump that gap straight, become a senior, you know, high-level senior athlete. Um, but a lot of people, I think, can develop into a good, high-level senior athlete as long as they've kind of gone through the right steps. Um, and that's something that's probably prompting me to think about, do I need to get more involved a little bit earlier? Um, even just from my own general interest and, and of developing as a coach as well um as you know i have coached at a younger level but not 12 you know 12 months of the year or you know six months of the year whatever it is it's usually just for the school season um to try and implement some of these ideas that i have about developing skills earlier because um, there is evidence to say that you probably can can actually expand their envelope for, for overall performance
0: i oh, what have thought <clears throat> would have thought you can uh the years I've coached I haven't really coached anyone over 18 19 20 my age when I when I stopped running uh, most of the time you've got that six months they've got their winter sports that yeah, I'm yeah. always pushing them to do go you need to get away from the track uh everyone knows it's crap during winter at the track and we're talking about adults don't like that so when you look at a kid perspective yeah it's not it's not going to be fun for them it's not fun at all running Man, around
1: cold. in the cold the rain the dark the it, lights it's 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 uh, not a fun environment no not so really you've got to Throw them away for six, four well, that, months. Well, that's that's where even like, you know, you mentioned things like some of these younger athletes getting into the gym. I'm not against it as well in the sense of like, if that's what they're doing during the winter because they don't want to be outside in the rain and you think you actually can get some development of certain aspects that you want, as long as it's done in an in intelligent kind of manner and it's presented properly, maybe that's a better way of approaching the problem and getting them to play their netball or their soccer or whatever it is um, or their footy instead of saying no 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 i need you to be on the track and doing 200 reps which you know i I don't think kids find fun and i I don't think adults find fun you know it's like it's been one of the revelations for me when in my coaching development was when i realized like hey we don't need to do the sessions that we were always told to do to develop certain performances um because i don't enjoy doing them and i know my athletes don't enjoy doing them and just because historically they've been used doesn't mean that they're actually effective. Um, you know, sometimes people, like, I always like the saying that sometimes people succeed um, despite, you know, or in spite of the uh, the application of training that they've had. Um, and I think that that happens. Some people just have talent and if you, if you expose them to some level of hard training, they get better, um, even if the training's kind of rubbish. <laughs> Plenty of those sessions in the past. Oh, it's always the case. And, like, I think most athletes know that some of the sessions don't really have any benefit for them. I think this is one of the, the big things that I've slowly had to learn more and more is, you know, like, I'll admittedly say that I'm, you know, can be much, like, very much a control freak when it comes to training and, and all of that. And this is what's been interesting about this whole COVID time is actually it's taught me stop, you have to let go a little bit because you can't see the athletes anyway. You know, the regulations are you're not allowed to be in the same space. So it actually told me, okay, well, how do I get smarter about this and how do I actually start developing more uh, communication and more trust with my athletes so that they can facilitate some of that stuff? And I think that needs to probably happen earlier with younger athletes. Um, I think we're very directive towards children. Sometimes it's warranted because the kids don't want to engage with kind of relationship where they're part of making the decisions but you know you're a parent i'm not but i would i would suspect that the better and the more often that you have you know the younger people getting involved in that communication and being like okay well why have you chosen to do that or why do you think we're doing this or you know do you have any ideas on what we could do about that and you know there's obviously a spectrum where at the start you're making most of the decisions and then slowly allowing them to make some decisions And then eventually it gets to the point where, you know, I've got athletes who are 30, you know, who are still competing at national level. And the discussions I have with them are completely different, you know. And if they say to me, I can't do that, it's not even a discussion. Like, I trust them so inherently that it's like, okay, what do you think you can do? You know, what's plan B? What's plan C? What's plan D? Um, You know, and if they just say, no, I can't do it, there's a level of discussion and trust there that it means that, okay, we're not doing that. Um, you know, as, a, as with your kids, it might be like, all right, today I want you to get your drills done. You've got 10 minutes to do it. I don't really care how you do that. You know, you're not allowing them to choose the session, but you're not saying you've got to do it in front of me and you've got to do one after the other or whatever it is. It's actually giving them some ownership. And mm. I, I think that's part of the whole leadership kind of journey that you take on as a coach. Because I think one of the things that, coaches historically at least and i think maybe you know well not maybe i definitely fell into this idea of like understanding your personality and understanding even your leadership style is is really really important and i think as a coach maybe you don't see yourself as being a leader but you know sometimes even just by default you are because you're the person that people are coming to for information and, and guidance um the way in which you actually approach those problems really has a big bearing on the way in which a lot of the things actually carry out in the session. You know, if, if you're very authoritative, you know, and I found this out the hard way, people don't want to ask questions because they think they're going to get yelled at. Um, whereas if you're consultative with them and you say, okay, what do you think about this from the start? They're very, very open to saying, oh, I think this might work or that might work. And even young, even young athletes, like the athlete that I coach that's 18, He's actually probably one of the more inquisitive athletes that i have and it's probably because he's a little bit earlier in his, his you know athletic development and he's a little bit more um uh, maybe it's just his nature in some ways you know his personality type but he asked lots of questions and he wants to play with certain things and it actually prompted me in more in this this pre-season in fact i actually started doing it where We do, we're doing a four week cycle, three weeks hard, one week easy. In the fourth week, I actually say to them, come to me with any ideas that you might have about, you know, in this week that is more of a recovery week. Is there anything that you want to work on that we haven't touched in the last three or four weeks? You know, and I'll often get them go, oh, I'd like to play with this, you know, my acceleration. I want to play with the blocks or I want to do this or I want to do, you know, that. Whereas in the past, I've always been like, nope, that's what we're doing. That was the program. We're not changing it. You know, just because – and it's like, well, really? Like, who does that benefit? It probably doesn't benefit the athletes. You know, it probably benefits me because I think I'm in control. But for them, they're like, well, you know, what the hell? Like, why can't I play with something that I want to have time to play with the training? Um, and I think that whole sort of style of leadership, you know, one, it's clearly changes in a lot of workplaces and I think it probably needs to change – um, and uh, there are definitely people who have always been good at this in the um, uh, in, in the coaching sphere. But I think you know, I think that's changing as well. There's a lot less of that, you know, militarized, authoritarian style of coaching. You'd
0: hope so. If we go back and, and me being a parent, it's all about trusting, trusting the coach, doing the right thing on on the field, predominantly, but also protecting the child at the same time. The trust between the coach and the athlete. Uh, If we go back to what's going to serve it best, what's going to serve you best as a coach? And if we're talking about the the elite athletes as the juniors, winning gold medals at nationals and going to world juniors, best served towards those coaches, but there's no real development of that athlete and they're most likely to disappear out of the sport entirely and choose something else?
1: I think... There's a few issues here, so I think we kind of have to like unpack them if you want. If you want to go down that path, we can unpack them. There's a couple of issues with this, right? Um, And like you're touching on some really, really important stuff. The reason people fall out of the sport, there's a couple of reasons, right? And we tend to see there's two major times in which people fall out of the sport. They fall out around 12, 13, so usually around the transition of high school. Mm.
0: Which is the numbers we say at the little, little athletics. Yeah,
1: and yeah. that's kind of where I get those statistics from. And, you know, talking with a lot of um, sort of managers and, and, and team managers and stuff at little athletics, I say around that transition, 12, 13, 14 is where we lose most of our athletes. And mm. even, I'm sure overwhelmingly, you would find that the age groups of, you know, th- under 13s, 14s, 15s, whatever it is, um, is much less populated than the under six, sevens, eights, nines. Um, now, and we'll talk about that in a second. And then the other one, big one that drops out is you tend to see people fall off a cliff around the time they finish university. Actually, there's probably one when they finish school and then one when they finish university. The one, and there's different reasons for, for those. The ones who disappear when they're 12, 13, 14 tends to be when they realise that maybe they're not progressing as much in the sport as what they would like to be. Right, and some of that's coupled with you know basic things like hormones and changes in body shapes and all that stuff, which I think, you know, sadly for some girls is, is a bigger issue than others. They they kind of really don't like that period, um, you know. I think they realize later on that it's not as bad as what they thought, but at the time, it, I'm sure it's a, it actually is quite a uh, a difficult time for them to manage. Um, so I think that's one of the big drivers. But one of the key things with it is I think that. We don't, as coaches, as parents, as people who manage um, the sport at that level, don't provide either an interesting enough product in terms of, you know, what the competition's like, what the socialization is like, what their development is like, so that they can continue to stay in the sport. You know, there are obviously competition with other sports that, Really has much more of a community aspect to it like team sports and there is much more fun and social socialization that you get of being part of that community than what you probably do with being in part of an athletics club or an athletics um, venue the other major issue that exists and I think this is one of the really big problems with athletics is there isn't a very clearly defined development pathway so the transition particularly from little athletics to um, you know what people tend to term seniors or or the amateur sphere is actually horrendous the product that they offer and the competition is shit right and i don't blame you know younger people for going i don't want to continue on after i finish little athletics Mm. or i get to the later years of little athletics particularly if i'm not excelling the the thing and like there's a lot of reasons behind that and they seem to slowly be kind of getting you know, there's this idea of one sport coming through, which is a combination of two. And I saw the other wine day. One athletics, yeah. Yeah, one <coughs> athletics. And I think, you know, the other day I saw the WA, WA had actually come to an agreement. Um, I think that's probably going to be easier in some of the smaller states um, or less um, athletics populated so states.
0: Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland. I think it's going to be a
1: disaster, which, like, it, uh, unless
0: they can figure it out, which is going to be extremely hard. We know what it's like. From from the stories from Nev over the last sixty years. Yeah, yeah,
1: and and like I, one hundred percent think it needs to happen, and I think that there are some really really big, um, ben- like the benefits are enormous, you know. Um, however, I think there's going to be a lot of feuding. There's going to be a <laughs> lot of compromise that needs to be met, and I don't know whether, and other than by force, I don't know how they're going. It's going to happen. I think the government's going to actually have to kind of force them to come to some levels of compromise so that it happens, particularly in these bigger states that have much bigger participation numbers and memberships and all of that kind of thing. And they're not
0: forgetting the ego of the older ones, not the older ones but the ones who have been there a bit longer who think they're the best.
1: Yeah, there's some ownership of – you know, people have a lot of ownership over things that they actually have no ownership over, Mm. um, which is a real issue. So I think, yeah, the the issue that surrounds the whole idea of, um, you know, that that transition – you know if there was a much clearer connection between the two there would be a better pathway I understanding i think there needs to be and and like this is part of some of the ideas i've been talking about with a few people and actually um starting to put together some ideas on is how the transition goes from not only um the little last idea to schools and i think the schools seem to work in an independent sphere of kind of mm. the, the leagues, uh, sorry, you know, like the you know, Athletics Victoria or New South Wales or whatever it is. And although they run things like all schools, I don't think that they want to get too involved in, say, the school leagues, you know, the APS, AGS, you know, in, in Queensland, the GPS, stuff like that. Mm. I think that, that there needs to be a lot more collaboration there where there's probably almost some encouragement of the better athletes out of some of these little ass to try and attend some of these places, you know. And, and there also is, there are some schools that, you know, public schools you know, in, in Victoria, for instance, we've got places like Maribyrnong, we've got Frankston, who have very, very good coaches, very good programs, very good setups, where Athletics and Athletics Victoria and Athletics Australia are not encouraging kids who are showing some good signs of development to go to these places. It's the schools actually reaching out to them and saying, hey, would you be interested? I think that needs to be more formalized if we're going to get a proper development pathway. So, as I said, there's a couple of factors. One, you know, people think there's, there's no development pathway. The, the product is poor. The You know, there isn't a clearly defined uh, structure for these people to work in. And then as we get older, as we get to 18 or so, again, there's that drop-off and there's that void once you reach, say, so the end of school, a lot of people do it for the socialisation factor. And then once school's finished, actually joining a club is a little bit of a step for some people who maybe haven't been in that environment. And the actual, as as you know, and, and uh, we've been involved in, you know, the APS competition that happens every year, which is a school level competition, is the best atmosphere that you'll probably ever compete in front of. You know, the only place that I've competed outside of that and including places like nationals and stuff that anywhere is near as good is somewhere like stall. Everything else is rubbish. Mm. And I think that's one of the things that the sport doesn't really seem to want to take notice of is that you're not offering a great product for people to want to stay involved in the sport. If they go down to a weekly athletics competition, not only is there not a great amount of socialization that occurs with the people that you like hanging out with, the actual competition's boring. You know, you're waiting so around for eight, a really long... Eight-hour competition. Time. You're waiting around for a really long time. And so these these cause massive issues. Then I think, as I said, the third the third drop-off um, is sort of... And, and it's actually something that, I don't know, for those people who follow athletics and are a little bit interested, probably not many of us, but um, if you want to hear about an issues with transition, I think there's a big transition that occurs between that 18 to sort of 22, 23... That is usually from people who are, have talent, maybe are doing well at national level. You've got to get from there to being really uh, competitive at the national level or pushing towards teams. And one of the things that happens is, um, so if you're interested in a little bit of this story, I would, I would encourage you to listen. So there's a podcast with he did on um uh, It's on YouTube um, through Athletic Productions. He talks about this because he was a very talented British junior. Around 10, 16, or 18, and then was like, okay, how do I get from here to actually being on a, an, a national, international um, senior team? But one of the things that happens is our system doesn't actually have a pathway for people. Once you finish, say, university, where do you go? What do you do? You know, you either have to get a job, which it's another discussion for another day, maybe, mm. but like, it's definitely possible for people <coughs> to take on full time work and keep training but there isn't necessarily the resources placed around these people. You know, maybe their coach isn't in a position to wait for them to start training at six o'clock or the rest of their training squad. Maybe, you know, the club that they're with doesn't necessarily understand the level they're training at and provide access and like really dumb practical things like, Oh yeah, the lights get turned off at seven thirty. It's like, yeah, but I got to the track at quarter past six. By the time I warm up at seven o'clock, well, I've got half an hour to finish my session or too bad. And it's like those are really basic practical things that limit people from realising, oh, wait, I can transition to something like work. Um, and in Australia, you know, it's different to lots of other countries. We don't have a particularly broad funding model. You know, it, it you do need to basically be at the level to get the funding. Um, it's even worse in states like Victoria where – you have to make a team essentially, either world juniors or a senior team to get into somewhere like the VIS, um, which is different to other states like Queensland, who is much more supportive of allowing people even to at least use venues and things like that, and then the Queensland Academy of Sport. So there's a big, big drop off, and it's one of the things that I've been really, really strongly pushing you know, and trying to work on really early. Like one of my athletes, that I, he came to me when he was about 19 – you know, he finished uni at 21, we were talking about him and what kind of jobs he would be interested in doing based off his education about 18 months before he even finished university. You know, and luckily for him, what we were able to do is, you know, make some, um, you know, contact with some of the people in our network to say, hey, it's still six or 12 months away, but like this is what he studied. Is there room for him to come into a role where he might be able to work and leave work at, 4.30, 4.45 4.30, 4.45 every day or on the training days that he needs to be at the track by five 5.30, um, you know, and you're accepting and flexible towards that, you know, he'll make those hours up even if it has to be on a weekend but, like, can he leave at 4.45? Um, thankfully, we were able to find the right people to support that but, like, that's going off our own back and the sport itself isn't considering these problems. And, and they go oh we get all these people who make world juniors and then two or three years later they disappear and it's like well yeah they're either injured or because they're trying so hard to make that transition which is not a difficult not an easy transition or they realize well I can you know go and get a job and relax and not worry about training until eight or eight or eight thirty every single night of the week um, and have to get up and be at work by eight o'clock or nine o'clock or whatever it is or. You know, I can nearly kill myself to get there and then if I don't quite make it, I don't get anything. Um, Not even a pat on the back. And that's, yeah, that you know, as I said, it's probably a long-winded and I'm sorry for, for draining some of people's uh, attention with that because it's probably a gripe that I hold that, you know, I hope changes. But it, it seems to be that some of these issues are consistently limiting the progression of athletes through the system.
0: Like we've we've both gone through that. We've also witnessed uh, Mr. Aaron go through that that scenario. Even with uh, sponsors on the side not wanting to not wanting to sponsor, even though he's the only sprinter going to a World Junior Championship, there's this nothing nothing really supporting any athlete. But if you put a footballer hat on, it'd be a very very different situation.
1: Yeah, and I think like that's a f- massive failure on the part of Athletics Australia um, and each of the you know the bodies underneath, it, the governing bodies underneath it, and. Fundamentally, the main reason why I think that there needs to be one athletics and one sport is because the way all sports generally work, who are in more of that government-funded model, is the broad membership base pays for the pointy end, you know, the high performance. The idiots at Athletics Australia aren't willing to give some compromise to realise that actually we need little athletics in order to actually kind of fund, not only the administration of the sport, but development pathways, you know, coaching um, and coaching development, and also, you know allow athletes to have a better resourced kind of environment it may not directly mean funding but like they've got a more supportive environment we have venues that are willing to work with them that are going to support them being able to move around or have flexibility around working and and transition and all of those things you know at the moment there are people, there are very, very good people working in some of these places, but they seem to be hamstrung by some of these limitations with things like, you know, the, the base not necessarily supporting what's happening at the top end of the sport. Um, and there is quite a divide, I think, that occurs between community level and high performance pursuits. Whether you're actually high performance or not, but like trying to train at a high level, they're very different. You know, I don't know, we spoke about this before the podcast about, yeah. you know, a lot of athletes do train in the community they train at their local clubs and somewhere like victoria we're lucky to have a lot of tracks however we don't really particularly necessarily have a high performance mindset and that seems to come down to the individual club you know you get clubs you know even in this area close to where you are like as you said you've been doing some work croydon that's more of a community level club you go to ringwood where they have traditionally had a lot of, say, Australian representatives or World Juniors or whatever, they have a much more high-performance mentality. Now, it doesn't mean that they don't accept community-level athletes, but they kind of have this idea that if you're there and you're training seriously, you're going to be supported with access to the gym and the track and all of those kind of things. You know, you go to these more community-level clubs, it's like, yep, Tuesday, Thursday, and that's it. Like, we're not helping you outside of that. And even then, it's like, we've booked the track, but, like, lady with the pram can still walk around. It's like, well, you're not really giving us much support here if we want to be like, yeah, and we're not doing anything crazy. We're just trying to train normally. You know, I think athletics is one of the funniest sports where you could have someone who's a national or international level sprinter having to share the track with someone, you know, allowing their kids to ride the bike on the track. And, you know, if you say something to them, they get pissed off with you. You know, it would be like someone going down to footy training with Collingwood football club and like, you know, <laughs> jogging through their drills and then saying, Hey, what's the problem here? You know, we saw what happened even recently with the Morgan, Morgan Mitchell, Mitchell and, yeah. and, and Nana reduce uh, uh, like a free. The problem that they had where the funny thing was, and you know, like I contacted someone about this, like the reason that they were there was not because that's where they wanted to be. I would say you know, and this is just me me guessing, but the reason they were there is because Albert Park, which is meant to be the high-performance facility for the VIS, of which both of them do have access to, was closed because the sport hadn't done enough work and hadn't signed off the stuff with the government to get the track opened, right? Now, I know there's probably limitations on all sides, and I know it's a very difficult situation with coronavirus, um, so you know, there is some forgiveness there, but the reason they were there is not because they were pissed off with Collingwood or and, and the reason they were annoyed when they got told to leave wasn't because of necessarily Collingwood actually having the right to be there. That they, they actually do have the right to be there and had the right to tell them to leave. It's because they didn't have any like high performance facility to go to. Um and that in itself is one of the major problems we face um, as a sport. And until kind of that idea of like, oh, okay, there's community sport, there's high performance sport. How do they interact? How does the public interact with some of these public settings? How do we police some of these things? And, and when I say police, it's not to keep people out. It's it's a safety thing. You know, I know we spoke about it before. The number of people that I've seen who are running around oblivious with headphones in get run into or nearly die, um, basically nearly die, because someone who's actually a very high-level athlete is running and – He's trying to communicate with them when they're on the track and they don't know what's going on. They're not listening. They don't understand the actual what we call track etiquette. And so you end up nearly killing them because, you know, you're telling them to move because they're in your lane um, and you don't have time to swerve at that point. And then they decided the last minute to move back into your lane or move sideways or whatever it is. And you you nearly kill them. you, know, you mentioned you've been doing jiu-jitsu. It would be like not following the rules that if someone taps, you don't let go. Mm. Just continue breaking their arm. Yeah. yeah. Well, like, if that <coughs> happened in a jiu-jitsu setting, you'd be banned. They'd be like, get the hell out of here. You're not welcome. Whereas in athletics, it's like some idiot is welcome, even though they're causing safety issues. It doesn't make any sense. And people don't seem to be talking about these as really fundamental things. Like, you know, he's probably not going to be happy I say this, but I spoke with, um, you know, the junior coaching development uh, person, Craig Pickering, and I brought up some of these issues of access to tracks and all this stuff. He wasn't interested. He kind of was like, that's not my problem. Um, he's like, that know, is your problem. That's, well, that's
0: exactly your problem. Well, that's
1: what I thought. You know, he's probably going to be pissed off with me now. But, you know, like the way I see it is one of the basic things, if you want coaching development, you want junior development, you need to provide a safe environment. And a safe system that supports coaches who are not being paid, mm. right, to be able to even at least carry out their craft. You know, if you want the kid, you know, the kids that are going through this development to get, you know, into your system and into your program, you better want them to get there without breaking a leg because they ran into someone who was walking a pram. Um, the basic fundamental resources or accesses that you need that need to be protected if you want these things to occur. But a lot of people don't seem to understand that. Something as simple as that actually provides a lot to the coach, athlete, parent, whatever.
0: I know even when Olympic Park was open, it was still hard to get into that track. Yeah, definitely. If you didn't have if you weren't in a part of the VIS or had a VIS coach or someone at that level, you couldn't get in. Um, but since the move to Albert Park, it's, it seems it's there's been months. Even worse. There's been yeah. months that you can't get in. I remember well, there was a post thing Rob Stevens put up. Yeah. I think it was August, Marchish time that you couldn't get onto the track. And then you put on during a championship time March was the Grand Prix you got through two weeks yeah, three so at weeks least, you can't at least use two the or track or three
1: weeks then which look it, it's frustrating but you kind of understand because it is a global inter- international event and it was obviously there before the athletics went there the thing with Albert Park which is crazy is you know it's run by MSAC and you know the whoever the trust is that runs those venues and they couldn't give two shits about the sport or you know they couldn't care less you know they're collecting obviously their management fee and obviously they're you know from the government and they're, they're clearly probably you know trying to make money off booking it out and all that kind of stuff so at the moment if it's not financially viable for them they're not interested and one of the problems we've seen with that is has been things like i believe it wasn't this year because the track was being resurfaced but christmas would have been 2018-19 that sort of um christmas They just decided from the middle of December until, I think it was five weeks basically, the track was closed. There was no reason for it. They gave, I think, a couple of days notice saying, yeah, we're closing on this date and we won't be opening to this date. There was just no reason for it other than we don't think it's going to be busy enough, therefore it's not financially cost effective for us to keep the track open and have a staff member opening the gates. Is there a membership not a membership there's a subscription type yeah, to yeah. use Alpha Park? You could like it's all paid for. Like you're paying to use. It's kind of like imagine if you were going to MSAC the pool or public pool, whatever it is, whatever the and I don't think anyone has any issues with paying to use the, the facility. It's not You just that. have to have it open. It's 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 more a case of like you want to go to the pool and the pool's closed. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, but I'm willing to get in. I'm willing to pay. I've got a membership. And they're like, yeah, we don't care. We're not open.
0: It doesn't make any sense at all.
1: Yeah. And that's what happened. And, you know, like Rob's been very, very, um, very vocal vocal about it because essentially, you know, he's trying to coach and he's been quite successful at getting people at a really high level, winning national medals, all that kind of stuff. And he's having to deal with not even having access to a track. And it's like, how can I, how can I develop, you know, people supposedly for things like and moving towards the Olympic team, I'm trying to develop athletes basically for the greater populace. Yes, there's a lot of individual pursuit there, right? But at the end of the day, you know, you're know, you essentially developing Olympic athletes for the Olympic committee, yet they're not willing to ensure that you even have the basic things that you need, like some track and some lights and access kind of most days of the week um, or at least a reasonable amount of access. You know and if you try and have a conversation with the management about it they're like well, we don't care." You know that question's been asked multiple times like why have you made this decision and most of the time it comes back it's just not cost effective for them to open the gates. If you go back to a craig question of why isn't
0: why isn't it part of his responsibility whose responsibility is it, is there an answer to that yeah. who do I
1: speak to? This is the thing that like you know I think that there are a, a number of really good people in that system that are working on this problem, one being Adam Basil, who's now the high-performance advisor for athletics at the VIS. And, you know, him being an Olympian and a top athlete himself, he really understands, he's worked in high-performance sport for a while, he understands that it's a major issue. And um, from discussions with him, he's really trying to push, um, you know, those factors. He has said that there are some limitations, which he hasn't voiced exactly what they are, it's not as easy as, like, just telling them to open it up. Um, athletics seemingly doesn't have the power to kind of enforce the management to operate like that. So um, I know that he's really pushing and a couple of people are really pushing for it. Where they get, I don't know. Clearly, at the end of the day, it's obviously going to come down to the government and, you know, the sports minister and the agreement that, you know, the sports, whether it's, you know, and the the trustees of the facility, so, you know, the management Athletics, you know, South Melbourne Soccer Club, VIS. What as all co-tenants, what actual relationship and what legal agreements do they have in place with the government to ensure use. Um, there seems to be, you know, some conjecture about how good the agreements are for some of the sports, particularly athletics, being one of them. Um, so it, uh, I think they're working on it, and interestingly, we'll see whether some something comes of that soon. Hopefully, it does.
0: Which would be nice. But if you look at all the, um, all the governing parties over the years, if we look at athletics in particular, and wanting to take more control than the other, we're looking at these one athletics and there's mentions of how you're going to split little athletics to seniors and that and that transition. If they're looking at taking it to under fours and kindergarten age, And then where do you stop little athletics? Do you bring it back to under 12s and then seniors goes from 12? Or do you go a kindergarten all the way through to under 18s like any other sport would do? And then how does that work out? If we look at little athletics, it's really up to each center to provide the athletics product that goes out. Then you get seniors, which is all done by AV and the the people in, in the offices there. Do, I suppose the question is, how does that work out as a future?
1: Like, obviously, there's so many different iterations of how it could work. Um, You know, I've got my own ideas and, you know, some of them I think are okay and some of them are probably rubbish. But I think that there needs to be a lot more involvement in my personal view. Um, There needs to be a lot more involvement of the transition from little athletics to, say, school systems. And I think that there should be actually probably the school system should actually replace a lot of the stuff that happens with what would be considered junior level... With AV um, and the reason that I say that is that I think that if you f- were to fold some of the school level competitions and create new competitions and more team-based things there are some t- stuff like the knockouts and all of that um, there would be an opportunity for there to be a major development pathway to happen within the school system and then the transition would be to more club level athletics uh, beyond that, um, and I think you know there would have to be links between schools and clubs and all of this kind of stuff. Which the big problem that you face with all of this is people. You know, change is not difficult, but change management with people is very difficult. And the reason is because obviously people have their different views and they think their their ideas more important or their authority is more valuable. So I think the thing that is really clear is probably at least until under twelve or under thirteen the product that gets provided to Little athletics, athletics is working. right? What happens beyond that I think is where there needs to be some change um, and then beyond that, as I said, we spoke about before, you know, beyond 18, beyond 21, 22, there needs to be some changes again. Um, and I think the biggest thing is the competition structure drives the development structure more than the other way around. So if you, if you have really good competitions for people to aim towards and things that they want to do and things that they find enjoyable, whether that's a week-to-week competition or whether that's championship-style competitions or team-style competitions, it drives people to want to be involved and it will drive them to a certain level of performance. You know, like for anyone who's very, very um, interested in athletics, you know, like probably the best junior competition in the world is the Jamaican schools champs. You know, the the atmosphere they get there is insane. They're, they're getting 50,000 plus people to a school competition, you know, and tickets are sold out. It's a four or five day competition. You can't get into the stadium. It's live on TV anyway. And people are trying to, you know, basically people are trying to get in even when it's live on TV and they don't have a ticket. So that's probably, you know, the level. But what that drives and what's actually allowed probably Jamaica to be so successful is because there's so much interest in it, the level of performance goes through the roof, and the level of development is so much greater because there's such a desire, there's such motivation to do well in competitions like that. Now, does that have some of its own dangers? Yes, because you get people who are trying to absolutely, um, or are applying way too much training, way too much stress to these athletes to perform at that competition. But what it's also meant is that Jamaica, you know, a country of a very small population has actually been extremely successful in the sport of athletics because it has the culture, it has the competitions to drive development. And I think this is one of the things that isn't being discussed of what are the competitions and what are the competition structures that are going to drive a clear pathway? you know if you look at say football, and one of the reasons I think it's so successful in in stealing you know so much of the talent pool is, kids know you start playing junior footy which you know at your local club which would be similar to your little athletics and then you get to 12 13 or 14 and then there's these regional clubs you know these NAB League or TAC Cup and they start taking notice and they start as you said before patting you on the back and saying oh you're not too bad you know or actually even before that you might have the rep rep team which is you know the interleague stuff right so you get start getting patted on the back with that then if you do well at the interleagues you start getting into you know these teams for the NAB League. And then if you're doing well there, you make the state teams. And if you do well in the state teams, you you get into the drafts, and then you'll obviously end up at an AFL club. Now, that in itself is three or four or five different steps that along the way you know exactly what you need to be aiming for, right? Because the competition structure is there. And because the competition structure is there, there is a development structure. People know I need to do well at my football club then I need to do well to get selected for the interleagues and then I need to play well there. And if I get play well there, then I can go to NAB. And if I do well at NAB, I'll get drafted. Or, oh, sorry, sorry, I'll go to the state team. And if I do well in the state, you know, the state competition that gets held, I think usually it's during these school holidays. Um, I don't know if it's happening this year, but um, I'll get drafted. You don't have that with athletics. What happens is if you're good at little ass, they kind of go, well you know, do states and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, okay, cool. Well, you could win that or you could even win junior nationals. There's nowhere to go after that. It's like, all right, join a club. Which club? Like, why have I gone to that club? Is it just because it's the local club? Or is it actually like, are they good coaches there? Mm. You know, like, or am I just, you know, and not everyone's in this position where they can make those sacrifices or even discerning enough to understand. It's like one of the big things that I think is a major issue with athletics in Australia probably in Victoria is, and this is, you know, I'm part of this group, so I'm criticising myself, but I don't think that there's the talent out there in coaching. And it's not anyone's fault other than the reason that that occurs is because there isn't the opportunity to develop into a good coach, right? And there's a big big issue with this that exists, right? Now, it's not to say there aren't really, really elite level good coaches. I just don't think there's enough of them. Um, and the reason that I, think I don't think there's enough of them is because there aren't opportunities for them to develop. Now, there's no, there's no financial reward really for coaching, particularly at a high-performance level, right? I think there's only a few coaches in Australia, across the whole of Australia, that are paid um, and are paid at a reasonable rate. You know, otherwise, you're working in the school system, um, which you can get paid reasonably well to work in the school system, but it's usually a short season, a short program, and then outside of that, you need to come to your own arrangement or, you know, find your own way of funding that, you know, and I think what's driven the changes in the development of coaches, and this is one of the issues we face in Victoria. I remember having a conversation with um, the, the person who runs uh, Lisa Verstratton, who's a coach herself, but she runs the education part of Athletics Victoria. She said, you know, we've got this issue where a lot of our coaches are really old, you know, especially our more experienced and, and really good coaches, you know, international level coaches. I said, yeah, of course. She goes, why? I said, well, with today's day and age and the cost of living, you can't afford to give up every afternoon of your week during your prime, you know, financially earning years to develop your skills as a coach. Volunteer coach. Well, sometimes you get paid. Like, you know, I think it's really important that we start professionalizing some of this stuff and people do charge athletes, right? Swimming coaches charge. Why do athletes coaches not? It's, a, it's another argument, but we'll, we'll, go, we'll get on to that at some stage, I'm sure. But essentially, like, the way that I see it is you have to be a nutcase if you want to become a high-performance coach because not only do you need to start coaching, say, maybe kids so you can develop, you need to go through education, you need to self-fund that, you then, during your, you know, you, once you, maybe you've stopped competing, so you're probably in your mid to late 20s or early 30s, you need to give up, as I said, your family years or at least family time and you need to give up a significant portion of maybe your financially like earning time uh, or financial earning time to be able to actually put into your own development. Now, there are idiots like, you know, myself and many of the other coaches I deal with, people like Rob Stevens and stuff like that, um, that are willing to do it. But it's not, it's not simple. You know, like even if I had this discussion with probably the best jumps coach in Australian history, John Boas, you know he's got multiple Olympic medalists, and you know the guy's really intelligent guy. He's a PhD physicist. You know he's still even at the age of close to eighty, still working at Monash, um, and doing some and some writing. You know he's not married. He doesn't have kids. You know like his kids are essentially his athletes. You know at the moment he's still coaching at an extremely high level. He's got three eight meter jumpers in the long jump. He's got two guys that went to world championships last year. So, you know, like he's basically given up a, a large chunk of his life um, to devote to the sport that he loves. Um, you know, and in the discussions I have with him, he doesn't have any issues with that because the enjoyment he's got out of it has been more than worthwhile. But the number of people that are willing to do that is actually very small. So not only are you playing this, you're playing this weird statistical game where it's like, Right. How many weirdos love the sport enough, right, to give up large portions of their time and life to be able to do this? Right? So that already whittles it down. Of those weirdos, right, how many of them actually are you know willing to educate themselves to the level and take the time to develop the skills to be a good coach? Which is probably gonna take you at least 10 years before you even know what the hell's going on most of the time. Right? So even if you are someone who can juggle a couple of these things like having a family and all of that, are you willing to keep going to the well to continue developing these things when there's no pathway for your athletes, you're going to have to develop it for them or really assist them along the way with finding the right people and right resources. There's no, you know, there's no help from a lot of the clubs. There's no help from AV or IA. So, and at, at the end of it, even if you get them into the Olympic team, there's no there's no reward other than the satisfaction of doing, it. and that is a huge reward in itself. I'm not going to say it's not. Um, that would be disingenuous. But essentially, you're doing this with absolutely. It's all on the integrity of and the altruistic outlook of your enjoyment for the sport, which is a crock of shit. Because at the end of the day, the the Olymp- the Australia, like no, sorry the International Olympic Committee. He's not making no money off the Olympics. They're making stacks. You know, they're selling the rights for billions and billions and billions of dollars for television. They don't share one cent with the athletes. They don't share one cent with any of um, the staff. And the Australian Olympic Committee, who receives money as part of that, doesn't disperse any of it. You know, that's where you get this rubbish of people like Coates paying himself close to a million dollars a year. It's like, what are you doing, mate?
0: Uh, That goes back to our earlier conversation with the junior coaches. Yeah. having that ego hit, taking the athletes themselves and then not really caring at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: I agree. So going back to your earlier conversation about control and your easing as the COVID restrictions come in, this is, the, I suppose, the interesting one for any coach. Most of us want to completely control what goes on. Yeah. I suppose you're going through that easing stage at the moment. If it wasn't for COVID, you'd probably still be controlling as best
1: you can. Um, No, I I have slowly been kind of letting that open up over time, and part of that there's two reasons for that. One is by design, like I'm realizing, stop being an idiot, um, and start being a better leader. Um, you know, the interesting thing, I, you know, like I'm sure a lot of people have, I got into audiobooks, and so I've been doing a lot of reading and. You know, some of them have been around leadership and stuff like that. And it kind of becomes pretty obvious when you start looking at some of your own development, like, oh, maybe I don't do things that well. So, you know, and, and last year particularly, you know, a fair few of my athletes, we had a few kind of team meetings where they were like, we don't like you, what you do with this. We don't like that. And it was kind of like at the time it was like, whoa, okay, like I'm copying it here. Mm. Um, but it needed to happen, right? And it needed to happen because – the relationships you need to have with athletes who are trying to go to a really high level is not its not a fleeting relationship. It needs to be close. And you need to have discussions about things that sometimes are not comfortable or sometimes are really personal. You know, like I know a lot about the personal lives of my athletes, um, more so than what people would suspect. You know, and, and sometimes it's like one of the weird things that happened to me on the weekend. Like I had one of my athletes... I think I mentioned to you I had a strength and conditioning coach come down and want to spend some time and talk about um track stuff and I had one of my athletes, you know, he's in her early twenties, come up and start talking about menstruation with me and he was like, Oh shit. And I was like You gotta deal with that. it's like that's part of it, mate. Like if, if I'm not willing to listen to that, like how supportive am I actually being? Um, and he was he was like, Yeah, 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 I know. He's like, Yeah, but I just you know, his, his background's cricket and he's always been more involved with men's and, and men's de- like junior development and on the male side. And he's just like, oh, yeah, like maybe I shouldn't be listening. I was like, she doesn't have any issues with it. What, like I don't have any issues with it. You're going to learn from it.
0: Yeah. I, I had a very similar experience at uh, under 12 nationals. Yeah, One of the girls I was coaching, her best friend who was her main rival, mm. had a menstruation that weekend. You go, well, shit, I'd never have thought about that yeah, before. Yeah. I've got to now start thinking otherwise you're not going to perform. Then no. Then you start thinking from a women's perspective – and that's, how, di- how
1: does that work? And that's 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 why you need to have strong relationships with people because those are really important factors, and and you can't ignore them. You can't pretend like oh that's not my area. Um, if you want to be coaching at the level, you need to be willing to actually you know get involved with, um, with understanding these things. Um, and so, you know, like me going through that development process and you know listening to some books and actually learning a little bit made me realize okay I've got to start changing. So my actual development and ideas around particularly later in the season last season and then in the transition to this season I started allowing more input from my athletes the thing that I would say though is and this is the big part is the input actually improved too because I've now been coaching a lot of my athletes for multiple years so there's a lot of basic inherent understanding that we have of how we operate and the kind of style of programming that I like Um, and the kind of ideas that I have um, and the way in which I present them to them um, and the way that I want them to communicate with me. So I think it was kind of a a balance of the both. Like they were kind of ready for it because they're older and more mature and I've got a better relationship with them. And, you know, they gave me feedback being like, you're a jerk, you know, a lot of the time, stop being a jerk. Um, You know, we think that there's some things we can improve on. And so – with reflection and learning and reading and, you know, listening to stuff and, and listening to them, I kind of was like, okay, I've got to start playing with this a little bit and learning a bit about how to approach that problem.
0: So structuring the the week to week, the month to month, the periodization, is that still come under your your head coach yeah, banner? Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. Do you so work like, with other other coaches, recovery nutritionists to work on an overall plan before you have that discussion with your athletes?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, depends on what what sort of aspect and who it is. Like essentially, you know, I, I still write all of the programs, um, you know, and like what the structure is going to look like across periods, whether that's going to be, in, you know, in, in the microcycle, like week to week or, you know, the, the bigger cycles the, the mesocycles and stuff like that. And then obviously what that looks like going into the season and I decide their, what I think their race plans should be or what, what their, um, you know, which races we should be targeting or not targeting and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the thing that's probably changed is that there's, there's more input into it. And, you know, like I'm, I will actually like send them say, oh, this is a draft, like this is what I'm thinking, this is my ideas. We did this last year or we did, you know, at the end of the season we were kind of in this position and I think we need to develop X, Y, Z. Are you happy to kind of keep exploring this vein that we were going down? Um, yeah, and in terms of like I'm really, really lucky – I would say, to, to have some really good people around me. So, you know, thankfully for me, I kind of have educated myself enough to kind of look after the basic programming of the track stuff and the strength and conditioning, um, you know, doing a master's in, in, in sports science. Um, uh, but, you know, the things that are kind of outside of my realm, you know, like psychology and um, nutrition and stuff like that will often – it's more so if people like those, are, I think, are things that like when they crop up and they need to kind of be addressed, I'll usually go and see there's a couple of people that I've kind of got on um, my list of people to kind of contact. Your resources, yeah. Yeah, so I'm <coughs> kind of lucky that we've kind of got built a decent team. And, you know, the good thing is, as I said, also, you know, my background as a physio gives me the opportunity as well to, um, you know, these days actually and this is something that I've picked up pretty early is like I'm. I actually struggle quite a lot to treat my athletes and be objective about my assessments because I'm like I'm almost too close. So I'm lucky that you know having the clinic um, that we have, you know, and, and having some you know really really good staff. Um, I'm in a position where like I actually say to them like I want you to go and see you know particularly Jack who I mentioned earlier. Um, he's kind of my number one like almost medical confidant because I don't. I think sometimes I, I am too biased when I see things. I'm like, oh, you'll be okay. Like, you know, that's not too bad. Or, um, yeah, I just find that I have got to the position where I almost have to kind of ask him to be more objective about what's happening. Um, and then I kind of collaborate with him on that rehab process.
0: And then the recovery side—that's all under your yeah. Generally, your like as
1: I said, with with doing the masters in exercise science, you kind of get exposed to you know most of those areas. Recovery being like quite a big one. Um, so yeah, all of that stuff is kind of stuff that I program in, and like it's a mixture of different things. And, and sometimes too, like I think this is one of the things that I have gotten slowly better at, or something that early on that controlling nature I really struggled with, which is like, no, this you, you have to do the recovery this way. You know, even when the athlete would say, like, it doesn't help me. I'd be like, no, no, but the research says it does. And they're like, it just doesn't. Like, I don't feel better for doing it. <clears throat> you know, an example is that Jack, who um, is a physio, but actually has quite an extensive background. He did a three-year yoga apprenticeship. So he's understanding of flexibility. And he's actually about to publish some research um, and some meta-analysis on flexibility um, through, his, through his role of teaching in the physio department at La Trobe um it, his implementation of like quite extensive flexibility schemes for the guys we found kind of some really interesting things like one of the things is it helps massively with management of like injury stuff but it actually for a couple of the athletes really flattens them so they actually feel really lethargic from doing a lot of like yoga type stuff even though it allows them to continue training for longer periods of time without being like, Oh, I'm a bit sore here. I'm a bit niggly or whatever. So it was kind of a weird game where some of the athletes makes no difference to, and it took us a while to kind of profile what kind of athletes respond better to this, which ones respond worse. You know, how much exposure do we need to give it to them? You know, we kind of got to the point where we were using it pretty much weekly basis as a recovery tool being like, okay, go and do like a flexibility session. And for some of them, it was perfect. It worked awesome. For some of them, it was terrible and it didn't like it, it just kept making them feel like really lethargic for like two or three days. And we got to the point where, for some of them, we had to actually take it out of their recovery during rest like, sorry, during race competition cycles because they were like, I feel flat. And you're like, but you shouldn't be flat. Like in my head, I'm going, Oh, you shouldn't be flat. You should be fine. We haven't been doing too much training, but and they're like, I feel, I don't feel like I've got, you know, energy or I don't feel, I don't feel explosive. And it's like, okay, like, there's no reason for that. And then sometimes you would see it reflected, you know, we do some monitoring particularly with some of our gym stuff. And obviously you take times on things on the track, but like we're doing some monitoring, looking at like velocity based stuff using some of the, like the gym aware, which we've got. And um, some, other people would probably have been exposed to like things like the push band, which you attach to the bar and it gives you speeds. But you would see like, Oh, they actually are performing a little bit worse. Yeah. And you're like, okay, what the hell what's going on. And so that, that took me a bit of time. So Yeah, in short, yes, we do look after their recovery stuff, but it's one of those things of like, I think it is individualized. And again, I think that comes back if we go all the way back to the start to the points at the start, you know, like the more immature a system, the less likely it's going to see those things as being, you know, negative stresses. But these guys, as I said, are all over 18 and they're all, um, you know, some of them have, have not been exposed to things like, lots of flexibility and they're 25 and now you're asking them to add that in that's actually quite a different stimulus for them whereas you give it to a 12 or 13 or 14 year old and they are doing it the whole way through they probably don't notice anything and they've just adapted to it so well that it actually becomes a nice foundation for them maintaining range of motion and not losing you know those kind of capabilities that you need Um, so it's always that balance they're like one of the athletes who well, he finds it he finds it really really stressful to do. He's one of the ones that loses range really quickly as well. And when he loses range, he starts getting really sore. You know, like he'll start complaining of you know hamstring tightness or you know back pain or whatever. And it's like, okay, well we need to find a happy medium with this recovery stuff because if we implement it all the time, we're maybe not maximizing the training and performance. Or, um, or if we if we do it like uh, not as often, maybe we're going to start cropping up with injuries. So it's always a balance with someone like him. And then I've got other athletes who, if they don't do it, their performance gets worse. So it's that weird thing. And, you know, like there's, this is part of why Jack's doing this, um, doing the systematic review is that, um, you know, there's a lot of conjecture about whether flexibility is valuable or not valuable in terms of performance. Um, And I think it's something that probably hasn't had enough, um, good discussion in terms of what literature actually exists because there is a lot but people tend to jump on one study and think that that makes a whole field of science which um, is, is not the case obviously.
0: Not at all. So if we're starting at um, your entire group, when you're getting a your program together, is there a generic start? You go track on a Monday, track Wednesday, track Friday and then gyms in between, recoveries on a particular day or every day <coughs> and yep. then you specialise with the athletes after that which are completely different?
1: Um, it varies from preseason to season. In the preseason, I tend to break them into event groups, and they do have a little bit of differentiation at the moment. I've kind of got, I've got one short sprint group who basically only ever run hundreds. Like they will run two hundred, but it's not their event. You know, they'll do them as part of their sort of development and training and all that kind of stuff. But you know, if you were to say are you better at one or two, there's a big bias towards the one hundred. So there's a few of those guys. And so for them at the moment, for instance, they don't run further than 80 meters ever. Right. Then there's a group who, well, there's, there's one athlete who's a 100, 200, but more 200. Um, and then there's the 400 group. Um, and one of which who's a very good four hundred meter runner, but he's coming off quite an extensive layoff. Um, so he's on a very different program. So at the moment I'm kind of running five programs. um, with seven athletes which was kind of weird, but, um, and even then, there's still some individualization. And then the thing that I probably learned the most actually from Neville um, more than anything, um, you know, as I said, it took me a long time to work out where his, some of his brilliance came from, um, was the individualization side of things and particularly in season. So in season, it's seven different programs. There's seven different race plans. There's seven different programs going. You know, sometimes I'll be standing in the middle of the grass on the track and I'm like, you go, I'll time that, then you go, and then, all right, you do that rep, I'll watch that. All right, can someone else video that one? Um, So it's kind of like, you know, I feel like I'm the conductor of an orchestra orchestra at times, Um, which – sounds ridiculous, but I think it's part of why I enjoy, you know, that it, like I'm kind of a busy person and I like doing multiple things at the same time, which I know everyone thinks multitasking is terrible. It probably is, but I kind of enjoy that aspect of it. Um, so yeah, when I design the program to start within the season, it generally starts with sort of maybe two or three groups. Um, and then we go from there. And at the moment, you know, like, there are differences between those groups on what days they do what. So in the short sprint group, they're doing um, short acceleration and prowler type work. So the the heavy pushing sled on Mondays and Fridays. On Wednesdays, they're doing um, like a speed and what I call like the moment we're doing something around sort of stiffness development um, using weighted vest. um, But it's, you know, they're sort of around 60 meter reps. So they're, they're more speed development type stuff. Um, and then Saturday doing like a speed endurance session, like you know sets of repeat 80s. Um, whereas um, and then the, and they have um, Thursday and Sunday off. Um, on those days, I get them to do their recovery stuff. So it's usually like hot cold. Um, they have their flexibility schemes. Obviously, at the moment we haven't been able to implement it in like a group setting because of the COVID stuff, but they've already got schemes that have been developed over the last couple of years. So they, they, they do those. And you know, like the recovery stuff is real general things. Like I tell them to sleep as much as you can on those days or, you know, like a Sunday, if you don't get up before 12, I'm happy. Like sleep, Um, you know, plenty of hydration, you know, food, all that kind of stuff. Um, You know, and, and as I said, for those ones who have the specific eating plan, it's like, okay, make sure you're really on top of those things and you're getting enough. Um, Enough recovery in. Um, And then the other group tends to go on a slightly different scale and they tend to be more um, because I need to get a little bit more work into them because they're sort of two or four. Um, They tend to be uh, Monday varies between that group. So some of them are doing hills um, and longer hills. Some of them, one of them is doing more of that speed session that the shorter group does on a Monday, and one of them is doing the prowler and and block-type accelerations or clearances. Um, Tuesdays usually – oh, and for those other guys, they usually do gym Tuesday and Saturdays. Um, Then the other group is doing gym Tuesdays as well. Um, Wednesdays is uh, track day. Um, Those guys are usually – one of them is doing a speed day, the one who did prowler. The other ones are doing um, sort of like – speed endurance types of like for the 400 guys it's usually like 150s or 200s but doing them at a reasonable pace sort of around 90 percent um off like a five minute kind of cycle recovery somewhere around that um and we've been playing with that doing it with different sort of inputs um as i said i really like the idea of that variability and like the skill development stuff so we've been playing with them doing with like weighted vest or sleds or even with parachute Um, which is kind of weird when you see someone running around parachute for 150 meters, but um it seems to be working quite well in teaching them actually how to maintain force applications across longer distances. And then they have a bike session on uh one of them has gym, which is the guy's more one two. Um and then the other guys have a bike session on Thursdays. Um sometimes they'll like that that used to be pool, um, but obviously pools are closed at the moment. So (laughs) can't get in. It's bike it's a bike (coughs) session at the moment. Then Friday, they typically have that off. That's their one rest day of the week. Saturday is track and gym, and that track session is usually more of a 400-specific session, whether it's like race modeling, race planning type stuff. So like split 400s and working on like different segments of the race um, is typically kind of what we're doing. It's usually they're more sort of harder lactic type session. And then Sunday is more of an aerobic um, pull or bike session. So it's usually like longer efforts, like ninety second two minute kind of efforts on the bike until they basically feel like they're gonna die. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and then if you go or was it uh, the Saturdays we're doing weights and a track session or speed endurance session, is the is the theory still weights first No endurance. No, no. no I've never done does that. that? I've,
1: always, I've always I've always Um, like it depends on your viewpoint and some people have this idea based on like there are some physiological kind of drivers for that people talk about some of the molecular pathways you know things like um, up to regulating say things like mTOR or even um, which is one of the building blocks for anabolic muscle growth Um, or you know people saying if you do too much say endurance type stuff you'll go down the what's called the pcg1 alpha um, pathway which is kind of going to stop some of that tool stuff and make it harder and maybe you'll get better endurance change. like i don't stress too much about that the way i see it is track way more important than gym in the development of an athlete not that gym's not important but if you just put them on a relative mm-hmm. scale track out trumps it so far it's not even funny um so i think get them there fresh get them to actually carry out and execute those as good as possible and then we'll do the stuff that we need to do in the gym afterwards now does that mean that maybe they go into the gym and they're a little bit tired Yes. Well, what I found though is if you give them adequate time to be able to, you know, we travel, it's not far, it's about 10, 15 minutes um, from where um, we do gym to where we do um, track, you know, they stop, they grab a coffee, they have something to eat, you know, they might get some, something like, a, um, you know, some basic sustenance, bananas, whatever they feel like they've actually recovered, you know, and then we get the tunes pumping and we get them going. So it's sort of like what I've noticed is it doesn't – sometimes they will come and they're like, I'm stuffed. Um, But often like actually the output is pretty good. Um, And and I'm very careful. Like one of my ideas that's sort of pervaded this year, which we'll find out whether it's helpful or not, is like I don't want to be peeling anyone off a track. Um, uh, You know, like I've done that in the past and I think – you know, you sometimes get almost attracted to this, this sadistic nature of being like, yeah, I really made them work today. And I broke like, them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, that's just idiotic bullshit sometimes I think. So, um, you know, this year particularly I found that I'm not having anyone who is, I believe, coming off the track being like, I'm I'm done. Like I can't do anymore. I physically can't move. Um we're at the point where we're literally allowing them to um, get there and actually be like, yeah, it was a hard session, but I'm, I'm ready to go.
0: Did that come from anywhere? Say a Pavel Satsusalen weights um, type program where he doesn't go hard at all at any point?
1: Uh, I would say that that probably actually came from just seeing over the last couple of years and trying to track things as well as possible and noticing that like, flogging people doesn't make them better, Um, you know, particularly in speed events, you know, like, and even, even to be honest, I don't don't even know if it helps you in endurance events. I think the thing that happens with endurance events is like, you need to develop certain capabilities of volume, but it doesn't mean that every single day you go to the depths of hell. Um, I think it's like, can you, if you're a marathon runner, for instance, can you build up to 200 kilometers a week? It doesn't mean that you're, you know, running 50 kilometers per day or you're doing days where you're dying. It just means like, can I accumulate that much training in a week? And yeah, that's crazy. But each individual one of those sessions, those athletes are probably like, it's okay. Like, I'm not really struggling that much. You know, like you get, for instance, you might even like, and I've spoken a fair few distance runners about this. Like they might get a morning run in of 10 Ks, which is not that hard, you know, or even if it is, Say a firm ten k is like they're not on the complete limit, right? That it's maybe a tempo eight or ten k. then in the afternoon they'll do another fifteen, but the fifteen is pretty easy. So on that day they probably only got to seven out of ten if you were to do like an RPE scale, right? So they're like, I'm not flat like I'm not not sorry not not redlining, Um, but you look at the body of work over the course of a week and it's like that's massive. And I actually like where a lot of this came from was last couple of years um with some of my 400 athletes now i think you have to preface this by saying depends on the profile of the athlete some of them require more work than others and some of them fit more into the speed 400 athlete the people who've come from one and two and have worked their way up to doing fours and then the ones who've come who are more that four eight kind of background now there's not many of those four or eight people around, you know, like the most famous example is obviously someone like Alberto Wantarena. Um, But, you know, that was the 70s and 80s when he was at his best and there haven't been a lot of those people. They tend to go eight up or they tend to go four down. Um, and so what I realized with some of my speed-based ones was the more work they did didn't make them better at 400s. It was more about the quality of what we did, not the volume of it and me making them do lots and lots and lots of lactic sessions didn't make them any better at running out the 400 um and so i kind of just came i think to the understanding of like what are the specific things that are going to drive the adaptations that i want so that we can get into races and have capabilities of getting results um you know like the the biggest one and, and i don't know there's been some discussion of this recently on on some of the profiles on twitter have been stuff like um you know and it's quoting people like charlie francis you know and like him or hate him but his ideas on speed reserve i think are still extremely relevant if you're a 400 meter runner the faster you can run a 100 and a 200 the easier you're going to find the pace for your 400 so if you want to run 44 seconds there's no way in hell you're going to do that if you can only run 22 seconds for a 400 because your balls out From the gun. And you're not going to hold that. There's no way in hell. But if you can run 20 flat, there's there's a good opportunity for you to be capable of running 44. So, you know, to go into doing, say, a lot of work, um, so-called work, and really trying to make people grind their way through developing the certain characteristics you want, I found that, like, unless the quality was there, they weren't getting the transfer anyway. Um, And... The other thing that came from that was we started to see more injuries as well, especially for some of my older athletes. Like I think that's been one of the really interesting examples. Like the reason I actually ended up shifting a bit to pool and bike was some of my older athletes can't run more than three days a week anymore. You know, maybe they can get four in, but if they get four, then like we're dealing with like, oh, my Achilles is getting sore. Oh, this is getting tight. Oh, my hammies are hurting. And it's like, do we really need to do that so that I can get in rep 300s for their 400, like that are done at 45-second you know, to 50-second pace?
0: Is there any reason for that? There's no quality in a 50-second 300 for anyone.
1: No, and it's like, but I want some foundational work there. So how can I develop that but actually take them off their feet? And that was something that I had to – or even if it's you know 200s, for instance, you know a lot of people will do descending 200s and they'll go start at 30s and work down 29, 28, 27. That's still – Two, two or three seconds off what they're going to go through 400 in. So how much transfer you get from that? I don't know. Does it develop some of the foundational stuff you need in that transition of anaerobic, aerobic conditioning for 400? Yeah, definitely. But, like, can I develop it in another way that means that they're not pounding out 10 200s or eight or 12 200s or whatever it is and then telling me, like, oh, my Achilles hurts when I want them to run balls out for 80-meter rep? Mm. Like, that's going to actually improve their speed? like. That was something that I started realizing. And some of the things that happened, I think, and this is why I've actually quite enjoyed starting to coach older athletes where initially I found it quite difficult was there's no bullshit. And what I mean by that is you can get away with so much stuff with kids, right? Like you can throw anything at them and they get better. If they've got a little bit of ability, they'll get better. It's actually really interesting when you take on, say, some relatively talented athletes and then your job is to see if you can make them better That's coaching, that's hard, right? That's different. You know, especially if they've got some reasonable amount of physical characteristics developed and they've actually been competing or like training for a few years. There's things you have to undo. There's things that you, or um, things that they don't have at all. And you're like, how can you not have this? You're like 24, 25 years of age. Um, You know, like, and so those things are really difficult. Um, And you just got to kind of go, okay, well, how am I going to approach this problem? And then, as I said, sometimes you, you find that with the younger athletes, you can throw. Like I will throw a heap of speed work at them. All of a sudden they're PBs. You do that with an older athlete, they get injured. You know, oh, we will just throw some volume at them. That'll improve their 400. You just have an older athlete, they either don't perform or doesn't make them better or, or they get injured. And it's like, okay, those methodologies don't work. They don't. So I've got, I've got to work out how to actually make someone better, um, which is a different game. And then – how are you monitoring
0: their load each week for running and weights that comes into that, uh, that injury prevention?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So like part of it's managed through obviously how you periodize and how you actually design your program, you know, like the periodization structure actually does dictate a lot of what's going to end up being the output for their load. So you know, if you say we're going to run this at 90%, blah, blah, blah. And as long as they're sticking somewhere close to those parameters, you kind of are controlling for some of those things and you're controlling the changes in those loads. So that's one thing. The, the second thing is, um, you know, like we're typically monitoring most of the things either the way I say like qualitatively, which seems to be not that popular at the moment in terms of like the sports science realms. Like if there's no numbers, you're full of shit. And it's like... Yeah, it's pretty easy to ask someone a question or see how they uh, respond. You know, like kids are really obvious, which is good. Adults can be a little bit more deceptive, but like kids, they come and they're in a shit mood. You know, they'll tell you straight away, or they don't even have to. You don't have to. You can just see them walking around, moping around, and you're like, ah, there's something wrong, right? And that's for you an indication that either there's something going on in their their life, you know, family, whatever, or you know the training's getting to them and you need to actually be responsive to that. So it's probably about being um, present and aware. So I, like, I get really frustrated watching with the school stuff that I've been involved in, you know, like the kids are warming up and the coaches are just having a chat on the side, dicking around. It's like, watch, see what they're doing. You might not need to say anything. You might not need to go near them, but watch, um, you know, like I think it's one thing that, need to get very aware of is like oh I saw that you know they're not really doing that well or they look like they're hobbling a little bit or they look a little bit uncomfortable or that looks slower than normal like what's going on with that are you tired are you sore um you know it could be really easy stuff like oh the track's a bit slippery and I felt like I wasn't sort of able to grip properly in my run-through or whatever but like those discussions really start showing you okay I've got to be present and i got to be aware of what's going on so the thing that I think is really important. Although we do keep numbers and, you know, like I'm constantly measuring things in the gym with them. We've, as I said, we've got things like gym aware and, you know, obviously the actual numbers that they're putting out are really strong indicators of like, are they going up? Are they going down? Are they really struggling with that? Um, but I'm really, really trying to be tuned in with the qualitative side of it because I think one, not only does it provide opportunity for engagement with your athlete, it actually, I think is probably more relevant. Um, And people will dispute this, but like you can often have an athlete come and you can see something's wrong and you know, like I've got to change this. And if you don't, like the number of athletes that I've had who I've seen, you know, where there's something going on and then like they're either sore or um, they pull up injured or something like that and it seems to be like it's driven by some like emotional disturbance or whatever, happens so often. And I don't think that there's the data backing this up just yet. You know, there is a little bit like – if anyone's interested, there's a really good study done that was done by a guy named Brian Mann, um, and he was working at which university was he? He was in the US. He's at one of the big um, one of the big football uh, programs in the US, and he's head of sort of sports science and strength and conditioning. He did this study because he basically found that they were getting a lot more injuries and niggles during particular parts of the semester he couldn't work out what was going on he's like our training loads are all well managed like we're doing all the recovery stuff and then after a while he twigged and he was like oh shit it's exam period and he was like okay i'm gonna keep monitoring this and he noticed that kept happening each semester and so what they did was they ended up doing a research study um, and it showed that uh, risk of injury increased during times of academic stress whether that's like mid-semesters or end of semester exams and whatever so i think that's something that like there's nothing wrong with them. You know, they're, they're not even like, it's not negative emotions, but they're actually just under the pump a bit because they've got exams or whatever. You have to be really receptive to that. You know, it happened to me actually last week. One of my athletes, um, the youngest one who's 18, is at uni at the moment, had exams. And he's telling me, oh, yeah, I feel like I was saying to him, you know, that you okay? I feel fine. I feel fine. Like, no problems at all. Like, I'm fine. Like, exam was easy. Like, uni straightforward. Like, no problems. Easy. And I'm watching him run and I'm like... You're running like, like shit. Yeah, he just wasn't right. Like, he's technically, he just didn't look anywhere near as crisp as what he looked in the other days. It didn't look like his coordination was great. You know, and my job is... And this is what I have learned, like, when I was, you know, a few years ago and I was immature and you, you can't learn to, you know, put your foot in your fucking mouth. Like, I used to say, oh, you look shit. And it's like, that's not helpful. So now, like, I realized I saw him and I spoke to him before and I was like, how are you feeling, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, no, I'm okay, I'm okay. And I watched the session and he wasn't looking great. He wasn't outside the bandwidth where I was like, he's going to hurt himself. But I just was like, I'm not going to say, oh, that doesn't look good. Or you need to do this, 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 this. Because I'm sure within three or four days, that's probably going to settle down when he doesn't have his exams. He's finished at the end of the week. And then this week he's been back to normal. So it's like, be aware of these kind of, Things. And that's where, as I said, the relationship and the qualitative stuff needs to be on point. But also be present and observe, actually watch, see what they're doing. Um, you know, I, I don't know how people, how interested people would be, but like one of the times I remember it was someone in the group and all of a sudden he just got really quiet and I was like, there's something going on. Like, And, he, and I kept saying, you okay? No, 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 no. Then eventually – and, like, I I try not to push him too much and he comes to me and goes, oh, yeah, I've had some family illness stuff and, like, as a family, we're trying to manage it, blah, blah, blah. This is what we're having to go through. I was like, mate, why didn't you say something? Like, I could see something was wrong. And he's like, oh, you know, like, I just was trying to process it myself kind of thing. So I think, you know, and not that the performance dropped off, but, like, just his demeanor was different. And I was like, yeah, there's something going on here. So I think that involvement and being a coach is – there's so much of it is that art and science and like, yeah, you need all of the science to understand it, but if if you don't have the artistic side, you're gonna miss everything. So it's kind of one of you can't have one or the other. It has to be both.
0: It goes back to that trust and relationships. Definitely. Yeah. Honesty on both sides. Yeah, Without yeah. that, you can't you can't improve no, all those little things.
1: You know, and that's actually something as I said, you know, one of our inputs, our mentors Neville, said from the start, like athlete doesn't trust the coach and the coach doesn't trust the athlete, (coughs) you know, he would say, you're wasting each other's time. Absolutely. He still says that. He also, you
0: know, makes you shitty. What's that? Makes you shitty. It's just like the frustrations, you go, well, at least
1: we're honest, everything's on the table. I think, yeah, I think that that's important. And I think this is one of the things – and I'm going to sound like I'm getting old, which, you know, neither you or I are that old, but, like, I think it's one of the things that you need, the reason you need to develop the level of trust is that high performance, whether it's in, say, a workplace setting, whether it's in a sporting sense, requires a huge level of transparency. So it needs to be brutally honest at times. And it's not, you're not making a value judgment about that person or who they are as a person, but if their performance is not meeting the level that it needs to meet for them to keep progressing or even vice versa, your coaching is not meeting that level. As I said, the guys ripped me to shreds. It needs to happen. They need to be willing to say, Hey, like this isn't right, or you're not doing that properly, or that's not the level of performance that's required for this level of um, activity. Um, I think it's something that at the moment, and you know, hopefully this is not too controversial. Like I think in general, there is a problem in society that exists where people are unwilling to be honest with each other because they're scared of hurting people's feelings or offending someone. Very true. Now, obviously there are multi-layered issues with that. And there's lots of social issues that have nothing to do with this. Um, But if you can't tell an athlete who's underperforming, you're underperforming because you're scared that them or their parent or someone else that they know is going to get upset, then that's not a good relationship. You know, and vice versa, they need to be able to say to you, hey, I didn't like the way in which you kind of gave me feedback or you got upset with me and you were swearing or whatever. You know, I'm not happy with that. And you need to be willing to take that on the chin too and, and not get upset and say, no, it's my way or the highway. You need to be able to say, hey, okay, like, yeah, I, tr- I trust that what you're saying is for the benefit of both of us. Mm, absolutely. For everyone.
0: Uh, one thing you're very good at, is educating you doing that not in just your physio world but in the track and field world now uh, recently i think it was april you started putting out some 10-15 minute videos on biomechanics <laughs> yeah, and covid boredom yeah, I was, gonna, was it strictly because of that or you you thought
1: there's more i can do in the athletics world that's not there at the moment yeah it's a little bit of both um, part of it is i was experimenting we've been doing some courses um, uh, like face to face courses for our physio stuff and you know one of them actually is a running sort of both injury and performance one that i do And I started playing with recording some of those because I think eventually, not I think, eventually we will uh, make those available online and even some of them that are practical, we will actually try and supplement those practical courses by having people like go through some of the modules beforehand. Um, So I started playing with that and then I realised, hey, like there's some interesting stuff going on with athletics um, that I want to talk about that I don't necessarily always voice. Um, And... You know, I'm very interested, um, and this is where these videos came from in biomechanics and understanding biomechanics and how it translates to performance. And I started seeing some things online, particularly, you know, I I use Twitter a lot, um, and people commenting saying, "Oh, this, you know, this doesn't matter," or mechanics doesn't do this, or it does that, or whatever. And so I thought, you know what, like I'm going to start putting some videos up, and I'm going to start discussing some of the things. And and there was twofold: one was get more information out. Two was kind of just to get some of the ideas that are going through my head, as I said, in particular in COVID time where I was not working as much. And as I said, I like being busy. Um, and the third one was actually is kind of a bit of a re- reference for some of my athletes to kind of go into a little bit more depth. Um, some of the videos actually have been very heavily directed towards some of my athletes and they know who they are you know, but like discussions on certain points and on certain things have been questions that they've asked me. And like at the time I've explained it to them and said like, hey, this is this. Is this. Um, but then thought, oh, what I might do is I might make a video and explain, oh, well, this was this and this is this. And then said to them, hey, make sure you watch this. Like I've actually created this kind of for you. Um, so it was kind of th- probably three different things that sort of led me to, to, to making them. So the, the athletes you've mentioned those, those stories of,
0: were they very m- more appreciative, more understanding of um, what you're trying to
1: teach them? Look, in general, like I think that the guys are pretty appreciative of what's going on. Like, and I don't seek a lot of um, gratification. gratification. Like I think that maybe early on coaching, I sort of sought saw, out that more. But the funny thing is I actually get a lot more enjoyment out of the interaction with my athletes than probably out of the results. Yeah. Um, I, obviously I, I, you want to get the results, what the game is about. But at the end of the day, I think that that enjoyment of like actually socialising with them and talking and being, you know, in some ways and a mentor to them in, on, on different levels is valuable. So I think I enjoy the teaching aspect so much that um, that kind of was more interesting to me than maybe, you know, whether they were grateful that I put it up. Um, the good thing was that it, it actually for a few of them, they actually said, yeah, I really understood that. You know like before you've said this and i kind of got it but when you showed a video of you know this really top level runner doing this 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 i really understand it now like i know what you mean when you say you've got to be here or you've got to do this or you know when i'm not you know fully extending or i'm not you know getting you know my front side position with my knee in the acceleration or my trunk angle's a bit funny or whatever or i'm not pushing horizontally or whatever it is is. They're like I, i kind of know what you mean now so there was gratitude in the sense of like there was increased understanding.
0: Any feedback from other coaches, governing um, bodies
1: saying, we need you on board? I doubt that highly. <laughs> um, I think I would cause too, much, too many issues for people because I don't, um, I don't have any airs and graces. Um, so I don't know whether the uh, the organisations would be that interested, but um, yeah, a few coaches have said basic comments. I've got a few messages from people just saying like, yeah, really enjoying this. Um, Because of the COVID stuff, I really haven't had probably as much opportunity to speak with some of the coaches um, that are probably a bit more tech-savvy, like some of the coaches that I have been in constant communication with. I think um, most of them are sort of 60-plus and are probably not looking at Instagram. (laughs) Um, So... Not so much with them, but I have had a couple of conversations obviously internally with the clinic, like the staff that work with us. Um, we've had a few you know, PD sessions on a few things and a few points, um, obviously with my group. And then there's been a few coaches who've just sent me messages on Instagram saying, oh, I really like this, like this is a good idea. What have you thought about this, blah, blah, blah. But it's been, you know, I would say, as any text kind of communication is, it's pretty hamstrung. Um So I'm kind of looking forward to maybe opening up some of those conversations when, you know, we start getting back to competitions and things. Obviously it's pre-season at the moment, so I'm not seeing these coaches like I would almost nearly every week um, when the track season's on. So, yeah, we'll see. Like I think one of the things that, again, I'll refer back to to Dan Pfaff that I would say is, you know, he always has this saying that if you – um, if, if you smother knowledge it dies and like I think that that's really incumbent upon all of us um, to actually share information as much as possible like and I'm under no illusions like just because I'm sharing this doesn't mean I think that I'm right like these are my ideas a lot of it's been informed by people much much more knowledgeable than me and a lot of it's probably rubbish and in fact I would probably encourage people to be like hey I think that what you're saying is completely wrong Um I, you know, like I think that that's probably how you learn more than if people are patting you on the back. So um, I hope that there is more discussion. I think one of the things that does play in the dynamic that exists in the coaching in Australia, it, we very much have some tall poppy syndrome stuff and I know even myself have fallen into that before you get jealous of people getting success or whatever. And the other thing is... Um, you know, like the the big fish in the small pond, it's like, oh, we're getting results, you know, like my athletes are doing well. And it's like, yeah, okay, like, but as a collective, we all need to be getting better because at the moment, particularly in the sprints, we stink. You know, like we've had a really good crop of two or three or four athletes start to come through in the last few years in Australia, Um, you know, like Jack Hales, your Brownings, obviously Trey was part of that, Josh Clark, um, you know, and they're getting close to being on that international level. But even now, like, none of them have the Olympic qualifier outright. You know, we haven't had a representative um, in the 100 metres, I believe, since 2004. You know, Josh Clark qualified in 2016. Unfortunately, didn't go because of injury. But, like, we haven't had a qualifier um, or representative in the men's 100 since 2004. And it's like that's not good enough for a country that is so good at sport and has such a good history of athletics and has a good history of, of – um, of sprints, You know, like, you've got the poster on the wall. We've got a guy that ran 2006 in 1968. Now, it was at altitude and what that translates to and all the blah, blah, blah. But, like, to be the second best athlete in the world at the time, to break the Olympic record in the heats is so far superior to what anyone is doing at the moment in terms of athletics performance and sprints in Australia. It's ridiculous. You know, we've had a lot more success, I would say on the women's side. Um, You know, we've, we've had obviously people like we know um, like Denise Boyd or Denise Robertson at the time, you know, Raylene Boyle, you know, Strickland, all of these, you know, Sally Pearson, Kathy Freeman, the Gage for Taylor, you know, these people making Olympic finals, you know, winning medals, winning the Olympics. Um, We've had a lot more success on that side. Um, And that, that tells you that the capability is definitely there. We probably have, or we're not probably, we do have the talent in certain aspects to get those kind of results. We're just not getting them. And I think we spoke about earlier about, you know, coaches not being paid and all that stuff. I think this is actually a problem, right? That stems into not getting the results. If you're getting paid to do a job, you feel some obligation to get the results. Uh, like, especially if you're getting paid well, like if, if you were say you were getting a proper wage to, to coach, say you're getting $80,000 a year to coach. If you're not getting results, you deserve to get a kick in the ass. Like you would if you were working for an accounting firm or whoever, you know, if you're stuffing everything up or you're not getting, you know, you know, like not even doing tax returns or you know helping your clients with business issues, they're going to say, sorry, mate, like, we're not paying you, get out of here. Or, you know, so I think that's actually a really big issue that we face is, There is this easy get-out-of-jail-free cop-out card that we have of like, oh, I'm not getting paid much or I'm a volunteer. And it's like, that's bullshit, right? The good coaches, and I know this speaking with them, the good coaches take on that obligation. They're there to get results for you and they take it personally if they don't. But that would be heavily persuaded if there was like, okay, well, you're, you're actually, this is your living. So why are you not doing well in this? You say that you want to be good at it, right? What's backing that up? Because it can't just be talk. You know, we need to see athletes making teams. We need to see athletes making finals. We need to see athletes pushing for medals. It's possible because history tells us it's possible. So unless all of these people that we've had in the last 40 or 50 years, you know, were just complete anomalies and the Australian population and the Australian genetic pool has diminished or dwindled down to rubbish, which I don't think is the case, especially given – the level of performance we've seen on twenty level, and even the talent that we've seen, particularly with this latest crop um, of, of particularly male sprinters right now, um, but obviously in the in more recent history the female sprinters, um, it's possible. It's definitely possible. That's been fun.
0: So, how can everyone find you on Instagram? You got your website, the Melbourne Athletic Development Instagram, Twitter. Yeah, it's also- is there a YouTube channel?
1: Uh, there's a YouTube channel. I haven't put a hell of a lot up there. Maybe this will be impetus if people start pestering me to start sharing some of those videos on You really YouTube. should. You really should. I know I should, but there's lots of things you should do. Um, as I said to you, I try and keep myself busy, so uh, maybe I'd add that to the list list of things to do.
0: <laughs> Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, John Nicolosi, Melbourne Athletic Development. Thanks very much for your time. I know you're a busy
1: man. Thank you very much, go back to Appreciate. Go back to the clinic and start working on people. <laughs> Thanks very much for your time. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Thanks, man.